he, he always brings up, we've got to rescind the election. We've got to take Joe Biden out and put me in now. He still says that. Yes. Yes. He still says that. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York, on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WMHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Burden Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today uh, for, well, I want to say it'll be a great show, but I really (laughs) have no idea because Desi Doyen, uh, between the time I last saw you and you headed into the studio, and now... The whole show has changed. Oh, goody. Breaking news. That's uh, always fun. But it's breaking news that we're going to uh, torture everyone and make everyone wait for a little bit before <laughs> okay. we get to it, presuming I have time to squeeze it into an already quite busy show. Uh, look, we never want to you know, sugarcoat anything around here. Lord knows we report enough of the horrific news uh, that is out there on this program, and there is plenty of horrific news these days, you may have noticed, from Russia's barbaric war on Ukraine to the embarrassing idiocy among one of our major parties, take your pick, uh, which has uh, been on display all week during the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings for Joe Biden's eminently qualified Supreme Court nominee, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, to the fact that uh, though recent polling shows huge majorities of Americans from all parties support the actions of Joe Biden uh, that he's taking in response to Russia's war on Ukraine for some reason or another, his own approval ratings so far have failed to tick up almost at all. So there's a lot of very bad news out there, and sadly, that news is uh, is the news that gets clicked on, gets clicks, you know, on the Internet that brings traffic to corporate media websites that get shared on social media, which uh, long ago has figured out in their sharing algorithms that the things people want to click on and share is the news that actually makes them angry. 
or makes them sad. In other words, bad news is more popular than good news, and it is also more profitable, which may be just one reason we struggle to make any profit around here <laughs> on this program, which, uh, by the way, is 100% listener-supported via bradblog.com slash donate. Uh, thanks, if you're able to stop by and help us out to stay on your public airwaves as one of the very few media outlets whose business model is not actually based on trying to upset you with the worst possible and most irritating and most maddening news. Even if we share plenty of it every day, unfortunately, on this show. If you want us to continue, though, we do need your support uh, via bradblog.com slash donate. It is as simple as that. But we don't need to please any corporate masters or political parties or foundations. And in fact, we often do the opposite of that and we pay a price for it. So, yeah, you know, bradblog.com slash donate if you can spare a moment. So... With that in mind, it is a bit maddening when we see this bad news for profit model proliferating across our entire uh, news ecosystem from the corporate media outlets on the Web to cable news to social media, which makes it all hum and helps turn the nation into a bunch of angry, disinformed and misinformed idiots. Uh, one of which is the subject of that breaking news I hope to get to shortly. Uh, but as I was slogging through the muck and the mud of the day's news today, stuff just kept popping up to me that was actually encouraging news, even amid our very real doom and gloom right now. One example, uh, in recent months, we've complained about banner headlines every month when news reports are issued uh, you know, by the Commerce or Labor Department on inflation, which, yes, is at higher rates than we have seen in several decades. But yes, one of the main reasons for that is low unemployment, meaning workers have a lot more money to spend. We've just also we've just spent more than two years in a pandemic and the economy is beginning to open up all at once. That pandemic revealed the enormous uh, failures, bottlenecks in our oligopolized global supply chains which have been maximized for Wall Street pro uh, profit rather than, you know, to serve consumer needs. And oh, yeah, much of it has nothing, uh, nothing more behind it, uh, behind the uh, inflation than simple corporate profiteering. They can get away with raising prices, so they are doing it, as their CEOs will say out loud over and over again, unabashedly on these corporate earnings calls you can listen to because so much of our economy has been monopolized by so few companies. There's little or no competition in the market anymore to keep prices from being artificially inflated by any CEO who feels like it. Also, I should add, since we've reported on this, but almost nobody else has, when inflation occurs, uh, in part because working class wages are going up, which they are. That means big corporations like banks make less money on things like mortgages and student loans because those don't get adjusted for inflation. So if you owe $100,000 on your house, for example, that becomes a much smaller portion of your wealth. 
So this kind of inflation is actually good for many borrowers and bad for many banks and, and other lenders. So, yeah, big corporate media outlets, which are owned by many of those lenders, have reason to complain about inflation as well even if it is actually good in some cases for some working-class folks. But you rarely hear about that, I suspect. So, yeah, uh, you hear a lot about inflation, but you hear much less about an economy that is firing on all pistons, as this one is, including record low unemployment claims and rising wages, which barely make a blip when those numbers are released by the government, for example, today. Headline at Reuters, if anyone noticed, uh, U.S. labor market tightens as weekly jobless claims hit lowest level since 1969. Really? 1969? Yes, really. Uh, that's good news. Do you think Joe Biden should get any credit for that? Well, it seems like it, but I have a feeling he's not going to. Well, I mean, how many people even heard that headline today? Did you hear about that? I uh, did not. Weekly jobless claims hit lowest since 1969. If nobody knows about it, Des, well, you know, this story isn't getting nearly the play as the stories about the soaring inflation. But, you know, uh, the real answer is, do you think that uh, Donald Trump would take credit for a story like that had it happened on his watch? Of course. <laughs> yes. And do you think that that headline would be everywhere if he was in office? I do. The number of Americans filing new claims for jobless benefits dropped to a 52-and-a-half-year low last week, while unemployment rolls continued to shrink, pointing to rapidly diminishing labor market slack that will keep boosting wages. Now, because uh, this is a report from the right-leaning corporate media outlet Reuters, their sentence actually reads, quote, pointing to rapidly diminishing labor market slack that will keep boosting wage inflation. Oh, yeah. So wage increases, rising wages is a problem that has to be solved because it's wage inflation. Well, you know, do they call it profit inflation when corporate <laughs> profits go up? No, they don't. Uh, also, they jump quickly to the bad news part of the story in the very next paragraph. Uh, the strength in the job market reported by the Labor Department on Thursday may push the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates by half a percentage point at its next policy meeting. Because we can't have that. Can't right. have those jobs. Yeah. Never mind, the, uh, you know, that, that, good, that good news about the labor market. It's going to cost you as the Fed is going to force recessionary pressures on the economy in response to so many people having jobs and stuff and their wages going up. Got to stop that. One uh, senior economist at Moody's uh, says if initial jobless claims remain below 200,000 for a period of time, it will raise a red flag with the Fed. Yes, low unemployment is bad news for the Fed and their friends on Wall Street, apparently. Initial claims for state unemployment benefits fell for the week, ending March 19 to the lowest level since September 1969, with numbers that were far below what economists, by the way, who were polled by Reuters, had actually forecast. And as you know, when new job numbers come in that are below what economists had predicted, that is huge news and the stock market tumbles and everything else. 
Reuters goes on, jobless claims have been declining from a record high, uh, a COVID high of more than 6 million in early April 2020 to just 187,000 last week. There are no signs that Russia's war against Ukraine, which has sent U.S. gas prices to record highs and is expected to worsen the strain on the global supply chains, has impacted the labor market and business activities. So even with the high gas prices and the problems with the global supply chain and the war, none of that has impacted the labor market and activity, uh, business activity. Seems like good news to me. I'm wondering how many of our listeners today have heard about this story before tuning into the broadcast. A survey from S&P Global on Thursday showed its flash U.S. composite output index, which tracks the manufacturing and services sectors, rose to an eight-month high in March, fueled by strong demand for both goods and services. Boy, we got to impeach that Joe Biden, don't we? The story also reports that business investment continues to rise. Well, that's good, too. Way down near the end of the story, uh, they report layoffs are likely to remain low for some time amid an acute shortage of workers. There were 11.3 million job openings at the end of January with a record 1.8 open positions per employed per unemployed person. So you got your choice of jobs to choose from. This ma- misalignment between demand for labor and supply is boosting wage growth, which is providing cushion to households against the soaring gasoline prices, as well as feeding into high inflation. Uh-oh. Someone call the Fed. The, uh, the claims report also showed the number of people receiving benefits after one initial week of aid. In other words, people who stayed on unemployment after one single week has decreased to the lowest level since January of 1970. Continued claims declined uh, sharply between the February and March survey periods uh, after the unemployment rate fell to a two-year low of 3.8% last month. So this number may be even lower when uh, this uh, this month's numbers become available. In the last line of the story, a senior economic advisor at Breen Capital in New York notes, quote, These data suggest that the March employment situation report is likely to be similar to recent reports, which have shown strong job growth and continuing declines in the unemployment rate. No wonder Joe Biden's approval ratings are so low. Good God. It's kind of like the economic equivalent of if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? Well, no, exactly. Yeah. If people don't know about it, I mean, you know, they always say uh, it's the economy stupid. Well, the economy stupid is doing great. And at the same time, the American people support what Joe Biden is doing in Russia. And yet his polls are not moving. Anyway, just wanted to give you the good news about the economy, since you might not get it anywhere else. And hey, here's more good news. Not receiving the coverage I I think it deserves. You'll recall we have been reporting on the challenge to the ballot eligibility of North Carolina Congressman Madison Cawthorn. As voters in the state, along with uh, folks at the government accountability group Free Speech for People, have charged that his support of the January 6th 
2021 insurrection makes him ineligible to run for federal office. That based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. We've discussed that ballot challenge to his eligibility a number of times on this program with Free Speech for People founder and President John Bonifaz and the group's uh, senior legal director, Ron Fine, uh, on this program. Most recently, the group filed an emergency appeal to a bizarre ruling made by a federal uh, judge, a Trump-appointed judge, uh, finding that an 1872 law that granted amnesty for Civil War soldiers somehow should take precedent over a constitutional amendment and therefore would be applied to Cawthorn. FSFP, Free Speech for People, has filed an emergency appeal to that bizarre ruling. But in the meantime, each time they have been on, on uh, the show with us, they have promised there would be more such ballot eligibility challenges to more of the insurrectionists, though they kept declining to say who or where or when. Well, as of today, we've learned of the next one. According to FSFP, in a news release on Thursday morning, a group of Georgia voters filed a legal challenge to Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's candidacy for re-election in 2022. The challenge was filed with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. It alleges that Greene is constitutionally disqualified from public office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution on the grounds that she helped facilitate the January 6, 2021 insurrection. The voters uh, who sued are represented by Free Speech for People, the nonpartisan nonprofit legal advocacy group with constitutional law expertise. A section three of the 14th Amendment, known as the Insurrectionist Disqualification Clause, provides, quote, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. The Seems pretty straightforward. It does. The uh, purpose of that... Uh, Insurrectionist Disqualification Clause, that's uh, 14.3, as they call it, that was uh, passed in the wake of the Civil War. The point is to not to punish the oathbreaker, but rather to protect the country, they argue. No criminal conviction or prior adjudication is required under the Insurrectionist Disqualification Clause, although Marjorie Taylor Greene would be able to seek judicial review if she has an adverse decision. So according to Georgia law, anyone seeking to run for public office in the state, quote, shall meet the constitutional and statutory qualifications for the office being sought under Georgia's candidacy challenge statute. Once a challenge is filed, the secretary of state must request a hearing before an administrative law judge to determine whether the candidate is actually qualified for office. The burden of proof then immediately shifts to the candidate who must, quote, affirmatively establish their eligibility to run for office. So, uh, in other words, she will have to prove that she is not disqualified to run for the U.S. House. The challengers, uh, they say... Uh, from FSFP, uh, intend to issue subpoenas to Green and to take her deposition under oath 
which is something the U.S. House uh, January 6th Select Committee has yet to do. As set forth in the complaint, the publicly available evidence establishes Green helped facilitate the insurrection before, during, and after January 6th. Specifically, the evidence shows that she either helped to plan the attack on January 6th or alternatively helped to plan the pre-attack demonstration and or march on the Capitol with knowledge that it was substantially likely to lead to the attack and otherwise voluntarily aided the insurrection. Some of this evidence was brought to the attention of the public in an October report by Rolling Stone, citing reports from organizers of the pre-attack demonstration. In the weeks leading up to January 6th, Green publicly stated that violence might be necessary to keep Trump in power, calling the date, quote, our 1776 moment which is a code word used by violent extremists to refer to an attack on government buildings. And she argued on videotape. You can't allow it to just transfer power peacefully like Joe Biden wants and allow him to become our president because he did not win this election. I am very convicted in what we're going to be doing on January 6th. It's critical for everyone to show up and show the nation who we are. We aren't a people that's, that are going to go quietly into the night. We are not a people that are going to be thrust into socialism without stopping it. Can't allow peaceful transfer of power. She yeah, just said it that's right what out. She said we can't allow the peaceful transfer of power. She is convicted mm-hmm. of that. She also went on to say, by the way, Joe Biden is guilty of treason. And she notes it's a crime punishable by death. And then she said Nancy Pelosi is guilty of treason. Also, yes, punishable by death. Shortly after she released that video, insurrectionists then attacked the U.S. Capitol, uh, seeking to, in fact, block a peaceful transfer of power and calling for the death of U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other officials. Since the insurrection, uh, Congresswoman Green has uh, attempted to defend the violence on January 6th saying it's justified by the Declaration of Independence. She's described uh, the uh, uh, insurrectionists as political prisoners of war. Uh, Free Speech for People uh, legal director Ron Fine, who was on the show with us, I think, a week or so ago uh, regarding the Cawthorn case, is quoted in a statement noting, quote, it's rare for any conspirator, let alone a member of Congress, to publicly admit that the goals of their actions are preventing a peaceful transfer of power and the death of the president-elect and Speaker of the House. But that's exactly what Marjorie Taylor Greene did. He said, The Constitution disqualifies from public office any elected official who aided the insurrection, and we look forward to asking Representative Greene about her involvement under oath. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, did offer a persuasive response to the challenge later today, as cited by Axios here, uh, quote, This is the same evil playbook the dishonest communist Democrats (laughs) use against President Trump and his family. Well, there you go. It's evil, and it comes from the dishonest communist Democrats. So I'm convinced. Uh, For the record, uh, the head of Free Speech for People, a longtime, well-respected constitutional law expert, John Bonifaz, isn't exactly a communist Democrat. Uh, While he 
supported the impeachments of Donald Trump and George W. Bush, which uh, shamefully never happened. He was also a supporter of the impe- of the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And if I'm remembering correctly, John was actually called as a witness to that end by Republicans in the U.S. House during that impeachment. Just FYI, you know, those communist Democrats. So this should be fun to follow. And I uh, I'm told by John Boniface this afternoon, quote, there will be more such challenges to be filed this year. So there's more of this ahead. Uh, Moreover, by the way, depending on how these challenges go, if Cawthorn and Margie Green are disqualified from the ballot due to constitutional uh, ineligibility in North Carolina and Georgia, well, it will be very hard for those same states later on to then allow a guy by the name of Donald J. Trump on the ballot in 2024 given that he appears to have violated the very same constitutional restrictions against insurrectionists who previously took an oath to defend the Constitution from being able to run on a federal ballot after having participated in an insurrection or a rebellion against the same. See? Good news! (laughs) It's out there! And hey, as long as we're discussing good news about seditionists who may find themselves facing eligibility questions for the ballot this year and or year's future. This one is a bit hilarious and may be of note to law enforcement officials as the seditionists and insurrectionists now begin turning on each other. On Wednesday, former President Trump yanked his endorsement of one of his biggest insurrectionist supporters, one who even donned a bulletproof vest to stand with him and speak at the ellipse in front of the White House on the morning of the January 6th insurrection. Donald Trump has now officially unendorsed. Congressman Mo Brooks in his bid for an Alabama U.S. Senate seat after the GOP senator uh, dared to utter that uh, he actually he, no, he's not a senator. He's still a congressman. But after the uh, GOP uh, congressman dared to utter that it was time to move on from the 2020 presidential election in a statement through Trump's Save America PAC on Wednesday, he griped that Mo Brooks recently made a, quote, horrible mistake when he apparently, quote, went woke by telling his supporters they should put the 2020 election, quote, behind you. Trump pointed to Brooks's remarks at a MAGA rally in Alabama last year when the GOP congressman urged voters to stop feeling, quote, despondent about 2020 and to, quote, look forward to 2022 and 2024 instead, a remark that reportedly spurred Trump's doubts about his initial endorsement of Brooks. How dare he say, don't be despondent about 2020. Let's look ahead to future elections. Like the one that's coming up. Trump said in his statement, uh, quote, when I heard his statement, I said, Mo, you just blew the election and there's nothing you can do about it. Which, frankly, had nothing to do with that statement, in my opinion. Uh, But rather... Uh, The fact that Brooks, in hopes of replacing retiring Republican Alabama Senator Richard Shelby, has been getting killed in the polls. 
He's currently running in third place for the GOP uh, nomination in Alabama for that seat. And Trump does not like backing losers. So he pulled his endorsement of Brooks and pretended it was about his statement a year ago. Uh, his uh, Trump's endorsed U.S. Senate candidate in Pennsylvania, by the way, has already had to drop out after allegations that he abused his wife. So Trump said, uh, very sad, but I'm hereby withdrawing my endorsement of Mo Brooks for the Senate. I don't think the great people of Alabama will disagree with me after he had uh, Trump had hinted, by the way, that he might drop the endorsement last week. Brooks emasculated himself by rushing out a, a campaign ad vowing his loyalty to Trump. He said, quote, I'm the only candidate in the race who stood with Trump on January 6th. Brooks also released a campaign ad vowing to fight Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who's become one of Trump's favorite punching bags. But here's the really fun part. After Trump dropped Brooks like a hot potato on Wednesday, claiming that uh, Brooks had somehow changed his values, uh, Brooks put out his own statement on his own website in response, and it is pretty remarkable. Uh, it reads, uh, in part, I have not changed. I am the only proven American, America first candidate in the Senate race. I'm the only candidate who fought voter fraud and election theft when it counted between November 3 and January 6. I repeat what has prompted Trump's ire. The only legal way America can prevent 2020's election debacle is for patriotic Americans to focus on and win 2022 and 2024 elections so that we have the power to enact laws that give us honest and accurate elections. And here's the remarkable part, which Talking Points Memo's uh, Josh Marshall highlighted uh, as, quote, an, an astonishing statement. Brooks said, quote, President Trump asked me to rescind the 2020 elections, immediately remove Joe Biden from the White House, immediately put President Trump back in the White House and hold a new special election for the presidency. As a lawyer, I've repeatedly advised President Trump that January 6th was the final election contest verdict and neither the U.S. Constitution nor the U.S. Code permit what President Trump asks, period. Now, Brooks doesn't say when uh, Trump asked him to do those things, but presumably it was after Joe Biden was already sworn in to the presidency, since Brooks says he was asked to immediately remove remove him and hold a new special election for the presidency, as if that is even a thing, which it is not. Josh Marshall responds uh, simply on Wednesday night to say, quote, it's definitional sedition. Sure sounds like it, if true. So Brooks was then on, uh, I, was this today? Yes, this was the, this morning mm. on the CBS local affiliate for Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah, he he was asked about those comments in that statement, which does sound like, you know, sedition. Uh, and Brooks did not back off. He repeated it, and he said that Trump had asked him to rescind the election uh, somehow repeatedly. The president has asked me to rescind the election. Of and 2020. You, that's you say that's, that's illegal. It's it, you can't do that. What did he ask you, and what did you tell him? Well, he he always brings up, "We've got to rescind the election. We got to take Joe Biden out and put me in now." He still says that. Yes, and I'm going, Mr. President. I'm giving him advice. I'm an attorney. I've read the law. I've read the Constitution. I know it. And I say, Mr. President, you can't do that. 
it's unconstitutional. And given a choice between Donald Trump, who I respect, he had a lot of great policies while he was president, and the United States Constitution, I am always going to choose the Constitution because that's what my oath of office is too. So he's saying, Mo Brooks is saying the president is still asking him to rescind the election and remove, remove Joe Biden from the White House? He's still doing that? Despite being told repeatedly, that's unconstitutional. It's a, you can't do that. There's, not a, uh, there's no not mechanism a for it. I mean, he's, by the way, he's only a congressman. Uh, you know, he's not even a senator, much less a Supreme Court justice. And by the way, a Supreme Court justice could also not rescind an election and remove Joe Biden from the White House. It is not a thing. So I have a feeling that this is not the last time we're going to hear from Mo Brooks on this point of what uh, Trump did or did not ask him to do. And one of those times very well may be in front of the January 6th committee in Congress under oath or better in front of prosecutors at the Department of Justice. Are you listening, Merrick Garland? Especially since it, you know, won't be long before Brooks, you know, he's, he's stepped down from his seat in the House to run for the Senate. He may have nothing at all to lose if he loses the GOP primary for the U.S. Senate in Alabama, as he appears scheduled to do. But just extraordinary, just extraordinary out in the open. And yes, now the seditionists are turning on each other. I mentioned that um you know, as a congressman, as a senator, and even as a Supreme Court justice, uh, no one has the power to remove him from office. Not like that. <laughs> That's not how it works. That's not That's how it not works. That's not how any of and, this works. And you wouldn't, by the way, you wouldn't hold a new election. Kamala Harris would become the president if you, for example, impeached uh, Biden and there was, a, you know, he was removed by a trial in the U.S. Senate. But you know, speaking of uh, Supreme Court justices, let's take a quick break here. We will come back with more. I, I uh, Well, I don't think I would call this good news, but we've got an update on a question I asked yesterday on this show, namely, where the hell is Clarence Thomas? That's coming up. And yes, that breaking news that I mentioned at the top of the show that has to do with Clarence Thomas's crazy wife, Ginny. That's ahead. And, uh, well, let's see, some actual, a whole list of actually good news, believe it or not, in Desi Doyen's Green News Report, as I recall. What are the odds of that? <laughs> All of that is ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. Please support independent media. Help us keep going by visiting bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I bet you could use some good news. I could use some good news today. We all could use some good news. So hopefully we're, we're bringing some. Now, um, I am not saying, again, I am not saying this is good news. 
But as this story was yesterday, uh, as we did on the show, we submit it once again for your consideration. And when I covered this story yesterday, I wasn't even sure that I should cover it because, you know, some of our affiliates played the show the next day. And I thought, oh, surely he will be released or we'll get an update and the story will be dead before, you know, any of our some of our listeners uh, even uh, get to hear it. So with similar trepidation today, we have this update. The Supreme Court on Thursday, once again, did not respond to inquiries about the health status of Justice Clarence Thomas and whether he remained hospitalized after being admitted late last week. The court on Sunday, a full two days after he had already been admitted, said that the 73-year-old Thomas was admitted to Sibley Memorial Hospital in Washington, D.C. on Friday. They didn't say that till Sunday. He was admitted on Friday after experiencing, quote, flu-like symptoms and was diagnosed with an infection. The court's statement on Sunday added that Thomas was being treated with, an intraven- with intravenous uh, antibiotics and that, quote, his symptoms are abating and, quote, he expects to be released from the hospital in a day or two. Since then, the court has provided no additional details other than to confirm reports on Monday that Thomas did not have COVID-19. If he was to be released from the hospital in a day or two as of Sunday, he would have been out by Monday or Tuesday. But by Wednesday... The court gave no update, and Chief Justice John Roberts, during Wednesday's uh, oral argument session, just said once again, Justice Thomas is unable to be present today and provided no additional details. So is he still in the hospital with an infection? If so, why? What's the infection? And why hasn't he uh, been released? Or has he been released and they're not telling us for some reason? If so, what reason would that be? The Hill uh, now has a small update today that doesn't make the answer much clearer. Thomas's close friend Armstrong Williams on Thursday told The Hill that Thomas is, quote, resting and he's going to be just fine. OK, good but declined to elaborate further on the justice's health pressed on whether Thomas was still in the hospital. Williams declined to answer as well. Why? And why won't the court even say whether he remains hospitalized or not? What's going on here? Williams said it doesn't matter. He's resting and he's doing well. I don't think the public cares about where he's resting. It's that he's resting and he's doing fine. I think the media cares about I don't I think the media cares about where he's resting. The public doesn't. I would beg to differ. I, I I believe the public very much cares, especially if he is still hospitalized nearly a week after first being admitted and having been told that he's got an infection, only being told that he was admitted to the hospital two days after he had been admitted and that he's getting intravenous uh, antibiotics, but he's on the mend and he'd be, be out by Tuesday. But two days later, he is still not out. Three days later, four days later. He is, after all, the second oldest justice on the high court, and he will be the oldest one after Justice Stephen Breyer retires uh, this summer. 
And he has uh, and and he has now been absent, Clarence Thomas, from oral arguments on key cases heard on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday that he says through a court spokesman he's still going to be voting on anyway, even though he wasn't there. And so, yes, his health or lack thereof is very much of interest to the public and to the balance of the Republicans' stolen and packed 6-3 to three majority on the Supreme Court. Where is Clarence Thomas? I think that is of uh, great interest to the public. And with that, it brings us to that breaking news that, Desi, you may or may not have heard about since it broke just before we uh, went to air here today. So forgive me as I sort of... <laughs> plow through this and try to make sense of it. It has to do with the corrupt Clarence Thomas's corrupt wife, Ginny Thomas. This from Bob Woodward and Robert Costa at Washington Post. So, you know, it's serious. Virginia Thomas, a conservative activist married to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, repeatedly pressed White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to pursue to pursue unrelenting efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election in a series of urgent text exchanges in the critical weeks after the vote. That, according to copies of the messages that were obtained by The Washington Post and CBS News. The messages, 29 in all, reveal an extraordinary pipeline between Virginia Thomas, who goes by Ginny, and President Donald Trump's top aide during a period when Trump and his allies were vowing to go to the Supreme Court in an effort to negate the election results. You know, the court where her husband sits and votes, at least when he's not hospitalized. And by the way, he was one of the only ones to vote to hear Cases that everyone else on the court had voted to dismiss as nonsense. And at the same time, his wife is texting the White House chief of staff to say we need to overturn this election, Mark Meadows. On November 10, after news organizations had projected Joe Biden to be the winner based on state vote totals, Thomas wrote to Meadows via text to say, quote, help this great president stand firm, Mark. You are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional government governance at the precipice. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. When Meadows uh, wrote to Thomas on November 24, the White House chief of staff invoked God to describe the effort to overturn the election. Quote, this is a fight of good versus evil, Meadows wrote to the wife of the sitting Supreme Court justice. Evil always looks like the victor until the king of king triumphs. Do not grow weary in well-doing. The fight continues. I have staked my career on it, wrote Meadows to Thomas. Thomas replied, thank you. Needed that. These text messages, the uh, Post reports late this afternoon, were among 2,320 that Meadows provided to the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The contents of content of messages between Thomas and Meadows, 21 of them, 21 of them does sent by her, eight sent by him back to her. Uh, have not been previously reported. So this is just breaking today. Ginny Thomas 
Also, by the way, recently acknowledged that she had attended Trump's Stop the Steal rally at the Ellipse near the White House on January 6th, but said that she left early because it was too cold and she did not have any role in planning the event whatsoever. So do not try to arrest her. In her text messages to uh, Meadows, Ginny Thomas spread false theories, commented on cable news segments, advocated with urgency and fervor that the president and his team take action to reverse the outcome of the election. The first of 29 messages between Ginny and uh, Mark Meadows was sent on November 5, two days after the election. She sent him a YouTube video labeled Trump Sting with CIA director Steve Pisenik, the biggest election story in history, QFS blockchain. No idea what that means, but Pisenik uh, is a far-right commentator who has falsely claimed that the 2012 massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School was a false flag operation to push gun control agenda. And the wife of a Supreme Court justice is sending messages from him to the White House. Uh, Let's see. She wrote watermarked ballots in over 12 states have been part of a huge Trump and military white hat sting operation (laughs) in 12 key battleground states. Remember that was remember they were looking for those watermarks at the uh, phony audit in uh, In audit theater in in, uh, Maricopa. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're right. Maricopa, Arizona. Yeah, right. That's what they were looking for. Their fever dream. Right. Uh, In uh, a November 5 message to Meadow, Thomas went on to quote a passage that had circulated on right wing websites, quote, Biden crime family and ballot fraud co-conspirators, elected officials, bureaucrats, social media censorship mongers, fake stream media reporters, etc., are being arrested and detained for ballot fraud right now and over coming days and will be living in barges off Gitmo to face military tribunals for sedition. (laughs) November 6th, Thomas sent a follow-up to Meadows. Do not concede. It takes time for the army who is gathering for his back. On November 10th, she wrote, Help this great president stand firm. Listen to Rush, Mark Stein, Bongino, Cleta. That's a reference to, uh, obviously, Rush Limbaugh, uh, another uh, right-wing commentator, Mark Stein, another one, Dan Bongino, who's on Fox News or something, uh, as well as an attorney, Cleta Mitchell, Mitchell, who was actually on the phone call when Donald Trump called down to Georgia to try to force the Georgia Secretary of State to find the 11,751 votes or whatever that he would need to overturn, to steal the election in Georgia. One minute later, Meadows responded uh, to that note to uh, Ginny Thomas saying, I will stand firm. We will fight until there is no fight left. Our country is too precious to give up on. Thanks for all you do. Nine minutes after that, Thomas replied back to him saying, tearing up and praying for you guys. She then attacked Republicans uh, who are uh, who she described in in the House and Senate who are just too pathetic. Only four GOP House members seen out in street rallies with the grassroots. Where the heck are all those who benefited by president's coattails? She wrote in her text message on November 10, telling him to watch a YouTube about the power of never conceding. She talks about having a forwarded. Uh, uh, an email that she had sent to Jared Kushner 
about Sidney Powell and uh, improving the coordination now that it will help the cavalry come and fraud exposed and America saved. I mean, again, could you imagine if any wife or husband of a democratically appointed Supreme Court justice was doing this kind of thing, was sending messages to the White House chief of staff? And by the way, when I described her as uh, incredibly corrupt and her husband Clarence as incredibly, incredibly corrupt, that was not a euphemism. They are wildly corrupt. Tens of millions of dollars were, were spent by a group called Citizens United to push Clarence Thomas into the job in the first place back in 1991. And then years later, he would find in favor of them in the infamous uh, Citizens United case, which brought millions, if not billions of dollars into our campaign and uh, electoral system. Many of those millions then went to Ginny Thomas. And were not reported, by the way, for years she was getting money from, I think it was the Heritage uh, Foundation. That was not reported on uh, 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 Thomas's disclosure forms, which he is supposed to report. And then he went back and uh, did amendments for like 10 of the past uh, years that he hadn't mentioned that. Incredibly corrupt. And then... He's got a wife who is actually participating with the White House, who has cases before the Supreme Court that Clarence Thomas then votes in favor of. He's the only one to vote in favor of what the White House wants and doesn't recuse himself from any of this unbelievable corruption. Huge conflict of interest. Huge. And of course, it's the Supreme Court, so it's left up to the justices whether they recuse themselves or not. If it was a lower court uh, case, of course, he would have to recuse. In the case of the Supremes, they get to do whatever they want. Because it's okay if you're a Republican. Jenny Thomas goes on and on, message after message. We will link to it at uh, Washington Post. I suspect there'll be a lot of people talking to it. But it just blew me away uh, just as I was heading into the studio. Oh, man, I got to cover this. We covered that and uh, dumped a bunch of much more important stuff. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, But we do have some much more important stuff ahead in Desi Doyen's Green News Report with a whole list of uh, incredibly... Uh, surprisingly, I should say, uh, good news uh, amongst all amidst all the darkness. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. One of the good news stories I didn't get to cover because of Ginny Thomas and that breaking news is that uh, consumers are now turning to electric vehicles thanks to the high gas prices out there. So there's a silver lining if you look for it. Putin's carbon tax. There you go. Uh, Speaking of which, our latest Green News Report. I thought we were going to die. We we barely made it into the room. Five, ten more seconds, uh, we would have been in the hallway, which is... Nothing. Deadly tornadoes leave trail of destruction in New Orleans and Texas. 
Ukraine's nuclear agency warns forest fires around Chernobyl could release plumes of radiation. Plus, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is spurring Europe to abandon fossil fuels faster. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Take that, Putin. We're not going to buy our gas from a war criminal. We're going to buy it from the good guys, Saudi Arabia. (laughs) Yep. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, climate change-related disaster after disaster after disaster in Louisiana and in Texas. It just seems to never end down there. I know, sadly. Louisiana's Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards declared a state of emergency after at least two tornadoes left a trail of destruction in densely populated parts of New Orleans Tuesday night, including a powerful EF3 tornado that lifted homes off their foundations and killed at least one person. It was part of the same system that spawned dozens of tornadoes in Texas. The New Orleans tornadoes knocked out power to thousands just seven months after Hurricane Ida heavily damaged the city's electric grid. And it's a region that has been pummeled repeatedly by multiple hurricanes over just the last three years. It has, and you would think that in Texas and Louisiana, huge fossil fuel industry down there, they would start to get the picture after all of these hurricanes, these floods, these uh, wildfires, and now these tornadoes. In a site visit, Governor Bell Edwards warned residents that that the death toll could rise. Take a moment to remind people that in natural disasters, especially when we have power outages, a lot of times the biggest loss of life isn't from the storm itself, it's from the operation of generators. And so we ask people to please be safe. Make sure that that generator is operated at a safe distance from your home, never in the home. More than 600 buildings sustained damage, many of them homes still awaiting repairs after Hurricane Ida last fall. As far as the influence of climate change on this specific storm system, the data is somewhat mixed on tornadoes, but studies do show that tornadoes are getting more intense, more frequent, and more likely to come in swarms, including an increase in night time tornadoes because of rising overnight temperatures. In Ukraine, the country's nuclear agency reported this week that Russian troops occupying the Chernobyl nuclear site have looted and destroyed a state-of-the-art laboratory that was working to improve nuclear waste management and contained radioactive samples that are now, quote, in the hands of the enemy. They stole radioactive samples? Yes. That doesn't seem smart. This is true. The agency also warned that several forest fires are burning around the Chernobyl site Mm. that could release plumes of radiation trapped in trees and soil, but that the Russian military's occupation is obstructing efforts to put out those fires. And if you burn a radioactive forest, doesn't that send radiation into the air all over the place, including... Into Russia? Yes. And a few days ago, the Ukrainian authorities said that they had lost the ability to monitor the radiation levels near Chernobyl. Is that monitoring still down at this time? Yes, unfortunately, it is. 
As we go to air, President Biden is in Europe to push European leaders to take new steps to curb the continent's deep dependence on Russian oil and natural gas that indirectly fund Russia's war machine. Biden also urged U.S. companies operating critical infrastructure, including the energy sector, to harden their defenses against potential cyber attacks, citing new intelligence. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine is spurring Europe to abandon fossil fuels faster. European countries this week backed a proposal to impose the world's first carbon border tax. That's a tariff on imports from countries that don't cut their carbon emissions. That's good. Germany announced it will back a European Union proposal to phase out sales of internal combustion cars by 2035. That's good, too. One of the world's largest reinsurers, Swiss Re, announced it is halting all business in Russia and will stop insuring most oil and gas projects. Also good. The Netherlands announced it will significantly ramp up the building of offshore wind farms, doubling its planned capacity by 2030. I like it. France announced it will end subsidies for new residential gas heaters and boost electric heat pumps instead and will stop import of Russian gas and oil by 2027. What is going on? Are you okay, Desi Doyen? And finally, laggard French oil and gas company Total announced this week that it would stop buying Russian oil by the end of the year and will halt new investment in projects there just weeks after most other major oil companies cut ties with Russia. Well, this is just too much good news for our listeners at once. (laughs) For much more on all of these stories, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Yes, please. All right, we got to get out. Thank you very much, Desi Toyin. Our producer, thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download them all for free anytime at bradblog.com. That service is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi and I stay on your public airwaves. Well, let's face it, really, to help Desi stay on the airwaves. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear me. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Woo! Tell me something.